0: So tonight we're going to look at Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 to 6 as we look at the second commandment. And really, as we look at this, we can't, you know, and this applies to a lot of the commandments as well. We, we look at Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 to 6, but really this is a commandment that's unpacked throughout the pages of Scripture. And so we're going to look at this in its various angles uh, here tonight. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. I, I think it was for my, the twins' birthday. Um, and they, my, my brother um, got them kind of a present. And it, was, it, was, it had bows and balloons. And, and, and it was pictured off of that this is, this is for them. And so it was a, a little like, quad that, that they could ride, four years old, a little quad that they can ride. Brother's getting really overzealous there, right? Uh, but, but Malia wanted to try it out, and so Malia jumps in the driver's seat. I'm sitting behind her, uh, and uh, she, 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 she starts using the throttle, right? I almost fly off the back. Little girl's crazy. Like, she just wants to pin it and just go like crazy. And luckily, I'm there. I'm going to be able to kind of like, no, Malia, let's pull that thumb back. But she's laughing like it's the best thing in the world. All right? Dad's nervous. I don't know how this thing's going to end. Well, thankfully, uh, the quad has a couple features. One, it has kind of a throttle, governor, or limiter, right? So you can kind of screw that in, and it barely moves. Right. It won't make it up hills if you, if you wrench that thing down enough and as a remote kill switch. Right. So you can kill the engine as they're driving it. Right. Well, these limitations for her driving the quad actually give her more freedom. Right. I'm able to, even now I'm sitting behind her, right? but uh, I'm able to let her drive and know that she's not going to try to do a 1,000 miles an hour on this little quad with a tiny little engine trying to haul me. right? But still, she's not going to try to go too fast because it's limited. And as she gets older, as Micah gets older, those limiting features will give them more freedom. They will be able to do more because they have these limitations. If it was a quad without that, they're not doing a whole lot. Especially by themselves. When we turn to this idea of worshiping God, and really we have to get there because we're going to unpack what that looks like, we'll begin to see that regulations or limits on worship give us more freedom, and they're appropriate and necessary for worshiping a God who is incomprehensible, but who makes himself known. Before we get there, I want to just, Pastor Nate showed this um, a couple weeks ago, But you'll notice uh, in in various traditions how they break down the Ten Commandments. And already here at Commandment two, you'll notice a difference between how this is broken down between um, the Reformed, the Greek Orthodox, and we would fall into that camp as well as Baptists. Between us and the Reformed are the Roman Catholic and Lutheran. In the Jewish tradition, they kind of lump verse three with verses four to six, and we're separating out verses 4 to 6 as something distinct. Well, read verse th- 3 with me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Right, so it, it kind of flows together. There's a, there's a sense in which uh, this c- commitment can be or it has been a continuation um, in some of the previous commandment. Right. We could say, as Pastor Nate said, the first commandment is about worshiping God exclusively, and the second could be in worshiping God rightly. So combined, we could have worshiping God exclusively and worshiping God rightly. So it flows well. But there's an essential reason that the Reformers and others have saw a distinction between the first and the second commandment. They saw the abuse of the Roman Catholic Church when it came to the way that, the, the way that worship was done. In fact, we could say that this commandment was really at the very heart of the Reformation. It raises two critical trajectories when we look at this idea and this commandment. We call the narrow look at the commandment and the broad look at the commandment. The first has to do with images. Directly we'll see that as we unpack that, the first section. And the second has to do with worship in general. So let's dive into the text and look at this. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in wander under the earth. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. Any likeness. Right out the gate we see that right worship regulates images. Right worship regulates images images but what does this mean what does it mean to regulate images It says don't make for yourself any of these images of anything at all rather it's inclusive don't make for yourself uh, things that are in the earth that are underneath the earth like goats goldfish trees like you name it don't make these images so what does that mean but does that mean that uh, pictures in the foyer and around this church that we have of, of places around Middleville, right, that's a violation of the second commandment? Art depicting different things? Well, Maybe because Pastor Nate and myself didn't rapidly yank them all down, soak them in gasoline, and have a fire in the, the parking lot. Right? Maybe that's an indicator that it's not a breach. Right? But our theology should be based on more then what turns Pastor Nate and myself into pyromaniacs? Right? It should be based on the Word of God. Derived from the Word of God. And so if what this is saying is don't make any images. We need to understand that. We need to obey that. But is that what it's trying to communicate? Look at the next verse. You shall not bow down to them or serve them shall not bow down to them or serve them. The making of images is linked, directly tied to worship. To bowing down. That's why, or number two is the bowing down to the idol. is the act of worship that involves images. That's what's being condemned here. That's what's being prohibited. So we cannot separate the Creating of images in this command from the act of worship itself. So, creating images for the purpose of worship is forbidden. But we could add, and it's connected to this commandment and taught elsewhere as well, that we can't create pictures of God. So, no creating of images and worshiping the, the images either to God himself or to some separate deity right, that of our imagination, or creating images of God. Right. So we're going to first look at pictures for worship, and we'll turn our attention to specifically images of God and try to unpack that the best that I can uh, here tonight. So first, images for worship. We're not to make anything or bow down to it as, if it's in, if it as if the image were a God that's worthy of our worship. The passage is inclusive, includes any likeness in all of creation. We could say that the first commandment forbids idolatry, don't worship another god. And the second forbids bowing down to images and worshiping them, or worshiping through them. So there's a distinction. Idolatry is when we're not worshiping God exclusively, but when we're worshiping through images or incorrectly God by use of an image, that's a violation of the second commandment, which makes Exodus chapter 32 with the golden calf the poster child for commandment to violation. This is your God who led you out of Egypt. He's strong. Look at him. No, I'm not going to look at him. This is a violation. This is an offense against a holy God. The commandment, and especially... This aspect of it, worshiping, using images for worship, played a big part in the Protestant Reformation. In fact, when John Calvin was asked to defend why the Refor- Reformation was even needed, so he wrote a defense letter to the government of his day, he mostly focused on worship and how it had been perverted by images. This kind of goes back. Uh, St. John of Damascus drew a distinction between worship, which should be given to God alone, and veneration, which he believed could legitimately be given to people, places, or icons. And during the Middle Ages, the use of icons and other forms of veneration were all over the place. They would say, well, hey, people can't read, so they can look at these images, and that'll help them to worship God. But what the Reformers and others saw is that this distinction between worship and veneration was a false distinction. This is how Dwayne Garrett says it when he's commenting on Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, uh, which reads, They sin more and more and make themselves mental images, idols skillfully made of silver. He says this, The distinction between worship and veneration is artificial and dangerous. It is a distinction that the Bible neither makes nor implicitly endorses. The human heart also has difficulty maintaining this distinction in actual practice. The thing that I venerate and that represents God to me will inevitably in some way become God for me. Furthermore, One must ask whether the pagans and apostates to whom Hosea preached might have sought to make such a distinction in their conflicts with Hosea. After all, the people of the ancient world were not stupid. Most knew that the gods transcended their images of wood and stone. It was, in fact, this, this very fact that allowed for so much worship mashup in pagan religion. We're not really worshiping this. We're actually worshiping God. This is just a representative of that God. You can't do that. You can't do that saying that this is aiding me in worshiping God. It's not true worship. It's just a vehicle for how I worship God. That doesn't work. This false distinction is actually avoided by instead of creating images for those that can't read or they can't understand. Instead, instruct them in God's word. Educate them so that they can read and learn for themselves. What perhaps started out as a good intention became maybe laziness for something better. This was a principal aim of the Reformation. Wherever the Reformation went, so did the ability to read and Bible translations in the native tongue. Well, this even in missions work of uh, missions agencies that go and they teach people to read and then they teach people the Bible. Like they're giving them the tools to be able to learn, read, and study God's word missionaries given their lives so that they can learn the native tongue so they can translate the bible into that language so we should take care i use images as a substitute for learning and growing but what about images of god should we have images of god well since god is an invisible god any image of him is necessarily a lie To create a picture of the invisible God is to break the second commandment. We see this in and Paul touches on this in Acts 17 in his sermon. He says we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This is not the same. Only so many comparisons or analogies you can have when we're talking about invisible to visible, right? But think about how much an image can reduce things, just in in general. If I were to see a picture of the Grand Canyon and I say, I visited the Grand Canyon because I saw a picture. You would look like, you would look at me, wait, you saw somebody else go to the Grand Canyon on your phone. And now, therefore, you think that you've gone you're out of your mind. That doesn't make sense. That you, you, you can't, they're, they're two totally different things. And yet, sometimes we, we try to reduce God down to something of our imagination, something that is created, and that doesn't make sense. That doesn't comprehend. Not only does, can He not be reduced, like, 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 like it's not m- matching up to who He is, and it falls so short of His majesty and His glory. And his wonder, reducing him to a mere image, is blasphemous. It's an attack on the very character and nature of God. So even as I I was working on this and I was saying, well, creating an image of God um, is is difficult or is is blasphemous. You can't do it. Um, Ashley says, well, what about Jesus? And that is the question, right? What about Jesus? And so we have to ask the question, well, can we have images of Jesus? Do not make for yourself a carved image. Do not worship them. Jesus Christ is God. He's the second person in the Trinity. And through his incarnation, he is human. So is it possible to picture Jesus? To answer this question faithfully, I think we need to avoid two extremes. Avoid two extremes. The first is splitting Jesus up, right? Splitting Jesus up. Don't don't separate Jesus. Think about it. We might answer the question about picturing Jesus by yes, if you're referring to his human side. But no, if you're trying to capture him being God. Seems to work, right? God's Jesus is fully God and fully man. The human side of Jesus is good to imagine, but the divine side is bad or wrong. But we can't do this. Scripture doesn't splice Jesus up like this. It doesn't say, now human Jesus went and did this. Now divine Jesus, he, he, he started doing this over here. But we don't see that. In fact, there's a lot of a lot of debate, a lot of time spent kind of hashing this out in the early church. In fact, one per, there was a common saying and kind of common, common, um, practice kind of in the church of, of referring to Mary as kind of the God-bearer. She gave birth to God and people were like, woo, let's, let's hit the pause button on that one. She gave birth to the human side of Jesus. Or what about the expression, what about the thought of, did God die on the cross? These are things that are wrestled over. Can this happen? Is this possible? It, that seems sacrilegious to say because God is God. And yet as they hash this out, they say you can't separate you can't separate Jesus. You can't tear him apart like that. What's true of the person is true of the nature. Jesus was born of Mary therefore you can say God was born of Mary because Jesus is God Jesus was killed on the cross therefore you can say God died on the cross one person two natures so this is how we have to think about it you, you can't think about it another way you can't separate those two to do is to, to, to do that is, is to To, to slip into tearing apart Jesus or, or misunderstanding who he was in his single person. Of course, the other side is, is mixing them all together. But as we have it today, when we're looking at this idea of images, it does seem that to picture Jesus is to picture God. After all, the, Jesus said, if you, if you see me, you see, you've seen the Father. To look upon Jesus is to look upon God. In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the image of the invisible God. With this in mind, images of Jesus that misrepresent even a tiny detail violate this command in the exact same way as images of God the Father, so you might be reeling right now, right? You're like, oh, 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 wait a minute, like, what's this? And you're thinking, does th- does this mean when I'm reading my kids, my grandkids' stories, and there's a, a a picture of Jesus? Like, does that mean that as I'm trying to lead them and educate them in the things of God, I'm actually causing them to sin? Right? They're good questions. It's good things to wrestle over. I think in order to answer this fully, we need to understand the other side. Right? If we ask the question, is it possible to picture Jesus, one way we must answer positively is by saying Jesus is a man. Jesus is fully human. Well, I don't know what he looks like. We do know that he was a man. And this inevitably, will bring certain things to mind. One way we could avoid this, here's here's a way we could avoid this. Well, Jesus wasn't really human. He just appeared human. So, therefore, we don't really have to think of him. We can just think of him invisible or maybe like a phantom that kind of appeared, but that's not really who he is. He didn't really have a body. Like, could could that solve it? Well, that was an early church heresy, right? That was happening even in... Um, even as they're writing the New Testament letters. Some people are saying, body, bad, soul, spirit, good. Therefore, Jesus can't have one of those bad bodies. And Even today, it's easy to reduce Christ, it's easy to reduce Jesus to merely a story, merely an example, perhaps. And so another error that we have to avoid is not to dehumanize Jesus. Not to dehumanize Jesus. Ed Clowney makes the argument that it is appropriate to use non-portrait pictures of Jesus. Because it will ground him in reality and show him to be really human. He uses the example of a children's story Bible where all the characters are similar. But isn't trying to communicate exactly what Jesus looked like. Think about this for a second. Um, it might fall into the trap of a not fully human Jesus if every time you read your child the story, instead of a person being there, it's a blank. Right? There's nothing there, right? or a shape. It might reduce him to something other than human. So, where do we go from here? I personally think that we must avoid both false teachings. But how this is fleshed out, we need a lot of grace and love. I am comfortable siding with many who have forbidden images of Jesus except for teaching purposes. I would even add that even in teaching purposes, It's wise not to use portraits of Jesus, but pictures that seek to communicate merely the humanity of Christ. If we're mentally picturing Jesus, that could reduce him to what's in our mind. Misrepresent who he really is. But it's something that we can wrestle through. I think we have to but we must avoid both those errors. Right? We have to ask another question. Doesn't God already have an image? Right. Think about Genesis 1:26 and 27. It tells us that men and women are created in the image of God. Right. We're image bearers of God. There's a sense, John Frame says it like this, not only is the dignity of God at stake, but also the dignity of God's true image mankind we don't create an image for God because God already has image bearers just look at one another don't get this confused we're not saying that God is physical like we are physical that he has a body like we have a body but we are reflections of who God is we could add to this the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect image of God. As we said before, to look at Jesus is to look at God. But how do we look at Jesus today? How do we picture Jesus today? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6, that the gospel shines Jesus brightly into our hearts. We see the face of Christ through the preaching of the word. So the word of God makes us aware of the one who is the image of the invisible God. So where do we go from here? Avoid reducing God to an image or using images to enhance your worship of God. Both need to be regulated. This commandment is not talking about taking down a cross in our church. But it is keeping us as a church and you as individuals radically word-centered in our worship. It should give us the aim not to be content to offer shallow teaching, but to take the task of knowing God seriously. It's one of the values that Pastor Nate mentioned in his Healthy Church series. We want to be a church where each member is growing, and we're always growing. So right worship regulates images. Next, right worship regulates imagination. This brings us to the more broad aspect of the command. One thing that you notice as we look at the Ten Commandments, especially as we start to look at kind of the second half, is they have both narrow and broad applications. When it comes to the second commandment, the narrow application is the use of images in worship. And the broader application is getting to the heart of the matter and how worship can go wrong in a variety of ways. When we construct images and worship them, we are really worshiping the true God or false gods according to our imaginations. We are placing ourselves in the driver's seat and claiming that anything we come up, anything that we come up with better be acceptable to the King of Kings. Using our own vain wisdom to worship God has been clearly taught against throughout the scriptures we saw this clearly in the instructions that god gave to build the tabernacle and for the priests this is how you are to approach me this is how you are to build my place of worship we see god giving explicit directions over and over again but if the medieval problem was approaching god in images and the art of the day Today, perhaps in our entertainment culture, a temptation may be to reduce worship to another form of entertainment. There's a recent article in in Christianity Today that promoted using a portion of your worship service, no lie, to play musical chairs. Another tip was to cancel service and hang out at a coffee shop. Now, it's one thing to be hindered because of weather and not be able to come. It's another thing to cancel church for a caramel macchiato. The reasoning seemed legit. This will help us build community with one another. But we have to ask, what is the aim of worship? Who gets to say what is right and what is wrong? Is it merely about outcome, like increased Numbers or a group that really likes to hang out? Or is the gathering of God's people something more? Another question we could ask is what kind of a pastors, what kind of authority do pastors have? If I said, everybody, stand up and let's do a leprechaun dance to the praise of the Lord, right? Would there be an obligation to submit to the to to those who are in authority over you, or would I be just out of my mind for asking such a thing? I hope you would think that I'm out of my mind. For one, just trying to see me dance to begin with. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with this idea? Well, one way that the church has addressed this is what's known as the regulative principle of worship. It, It would just be simplified as what isn't commanded is forbidden. What isn't commanded is forbidden. Or we could just say, simply, we we need to be guided by God's Word, right? We need to be guided by God's Word. Kevin DeYoung helpfully summarizes the benefits of this approach. He says this, the heart of the principle is freedom, not restriction. Freedom from cultural captivity, freedom from weekly novelties, and freedom from man-made ideas and preferences. The regular principle says that we don't have to guess about what pleases God in worship. We can obey the second commandment by worshiping God as he commands us in his word. The principle that says that God decides which things that we do in worship. While certain ways that we do these are left up to us. I don't want to go into too many details, kind of hash this whole thing out, but I could use an example. Um, as far as the proclamation of God's Word. Preaching and teaching is prescribed in Scripture, but whether we use a microphone or slides is a matter of how we wisely live this out. Preaching is to be done, but whether I wear a tie or short shorts is a matter of wisdom. Out of wisdom and love, we won't do the short shorts, right? Might be a violation of something else. I don't know. Right. But there's things that we're called to do. Right. Sometimes the way that that's done is going to be, look a little bit different. Next, we want to make sure that our worship is guided for God's glory and not our felt needs. Now, what we feel that we need or the culture needs or the culture wants. Structuring our worship services according to perceived needs is a quick way to get us sidetracked. There's a big reason why you don't see us having a sermon series like 10 Ways to Live Your Best Life Now. Instead, we march through Scripture and allow God's Word to set the tone and the direction, trusting that His Word is all we need. So, what does this mean for us today? We should take care to make sure that proper limits are set on our imaginations in worship. We don't get to tell God the best way to worship him. We also need to be careful not to allow the way we do worship to overshadow the who of our worship. In an age that loves to contrast one church with another, the most beautiful thing for any worship service should be what unites us with believers around the world. Believers who are singing praises to God. Believers who are reading scripture. Believers who are hearing the word of God preached. Believers who are observing the Lord's Supper and baptism. Let's not grow weary of these amazing things that the Lord has given us. He has given them to us graciously so that we can grow and worship him. Our passage doesn't end here. Verse verse 5. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, the children, and the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. It continues with these sanctions leveled against those who do not worship rightly. You do not take this seriously. And we need to be careful not to look at these regulations as some product of an age gone by. It is the heart of God. If we can come to this conclusion, our worship leaves a legacy. Our worship leaves a legacy. And with this being the case, we need to pray for a few different things. First, pray for a heart that takes God seriously. Taking the second commandment seriously should not turn us into legalistic jerks. It should humble us and make us rejoice that we are not left alone. But God has given us what we need to worship him. More than that, he has provided access through Jesus Christ. We take God seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. And that's a hard but necessary balance. Next, we should pray for a heart that loves God truly. Does your family know that you love the Lord? Is it evident in the way that you approach God in worship? Those who truly love God in their worship, is, it's going to be evident to those around them, especially to those that are closest to them. An example of this in my own life is over my dad talk to people about the Lord, wanting them to know him more. Hearing your parents talk about a gospel conversation one of them had at work does more than you know. That's impactful. Look at one other aspect of this, a heart that loves God truly. Do you want your kids to sing to God and worship like you sing to God? Are you jealous for them to worship God like you worship God? Or do you simply go through the motions? This doesn't mean you need to be crazy, jump around. But your kids know you, your grandkids know you. Is this a heart that loves the Lord? What does your singing say about your love for Jesus? And pray for a heart that longs to know God fully. Do your kids catch you approaching God through the Bible? They catch you praying to God. Justin Poitras wrote this of his father Vern Poitras is a godly man. It is within a man's private life in the refuge of recreation, in those unseen hours where his character is most laid bare. And so it is there I wish to speak on behalf of his differentness. One of the first areas I encountered this different godliness was in his Bible knowledge. Every seminary professor or man in ministry knows his Bible, or at least would appear to know his Bible. So such a statement might not seem like much. Yet my exposure to this reality was more organic and had a stronger impression. We did morning and evening devotions as a family, and I knew my father read his Bible in the morning, but I also remember other occasions, such as Saturday afternoons or evenings or during vacation times, hearing, of all things, a sanctified hissing noise. The noise would come from his bedroom, a door slightly ajar, and I discerned the cause of the hissing to be my father's voice as he read the Bible. He read it to himself at a volume just above a whisper. The result, audible to someone outside the room, was a series of S sounds echoing faintly in the hallway. When I peeked in, he would sometimes raise his eyes and offer a smile before returning to Scripture. He was always willing to be disturbed. But left alone, he would pre- proceed for long durations reading large chunks of Scripture in a single setting. The story of a, a kid spying on his dad reading the Bible, reflecting back on it as someone who's older. My, my dad loved the Word of God. It wasn't for show, it wasn't to show people how much he knew. He just, even on his own, he liked to go and be quiet and read. Well, let's continue in in verse 5 here. It says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation, but listen to this, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love and keep my commandments. Our parents' pursuit of the Lord or complacency or neglect of worship may leave an impact, but there is mercy for each of us. Notice the contrast between the negative consequences and the positive consequences. Fourth and fir- fi- third and fourth generation compared to thousands, brothers and sisters. To quote Richard Sims, "There is more mercy in Christ than there's sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than there's sin in us. His mercy runs over and it flows through that true image He has given us, the one." who truly, without mixed motives, without sin, approach the Father. As we are leaving here, leave with a healthy sense of the seriousness of worship, but do not leave without a clear picture of the access that is granted through Jesus. It is through the sinless image of God that sinful image bearers like you and like me can worship God and be transformed into the image of Jesus. We are united to him not through icons, not through images, not through little statues, but through the Holy Spirit who unites us to the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit isn't locked into a position, but he's with us wherever we go. Continually testifying to our spirit that we belong to the Most High God. What marvelous, infinite grace. What a mystery. We who are sinful, who left to our own, could never approach such a holy God without mixed motives, without sinful intentions. He came to rescue us and has united us and is for us and with us today, and forever. This is true for all who believe in Jesus. Praise his name. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the truth that you've given us. God, as we worship you, help our worship to be done in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you. And God, we thank you and we praise you for the one who came to rescue us in every way that we fall short of your commands on a daily basis. And yet he was perfect in our place so that we might be declared righteous. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.